Hey, Gimme Shelter listeners, this is Matt. Hey, just a quick note before the episode starts here. We ran into some production problems while we were recording this. Namely, my microphone kept acting up. There's kind of a tinny quality every time I speak. Um, it is listenable, it is bearable, um, and it does improve in the interview segment of the podcast. Um, but we just wanted to let you know that uh, we are aware of it, and hopefully we can fix it by our next episode because of the production issues, some of the transitions are a little abrupt. We don't get into an avocado of the fortnight. We will have one next time, we promise. Uh, I think that's it. Uh, please enjoy this episode of Gimme Shelter. Welcome to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, data and housing reporter with Cal Matters. And I am Liam Dillon with the Los Angeles Times. And today on the podcast, tech and housing. Can we blame absolutely everything on the tech companies that we all secretly resent yes oh wow <laughs> podcast done <laughs> exactly <laughs> so obviously the growth of massive tech companies in the bay area has been blamed a lot for the escalating cost of housing there and elsewhere in california too yeah um sure who- sh- sure is nice to have the the tax revenue they generate though it helps things in the state yes that's true. Liam Dillon, defender of big tech. Um, <laughs> won't be voting for Elizabeth Warren. Um, who do we have to talk about this? We have two great guests. Uh, we have from the San Jose Mercury News, Bay Area News Group, Marisa Kendall, who's been covering this issue for tech for a long time in the, the tech housing intersection over the last year and a half. And also uh, Catherine Bracey from the uh, Tech Equity Collaborative, uh, a group that uh, represents tech workers who are in, interested in uh, addressing housing issues. And we'll also be talking about the state budget, um, which we've been talking about a lot in recent podcasts, but we actually have some policy details, some very important policy details that were announced yesterday. We are recording this on Friday, June 28th. This podcast probably won't drop until uh, next week, but we're recording it um, because um, some of us may be going on vacation. Have fun. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And also, uh, happy July 4th to everybody. Yes, and happy July 4th. We hope you're listening to this while waiting in the airport for Southwest to call your letter. We know you're a C. Because <laughs> if you're listening to this, you probably don't plan very well. You're probably spending most of your money on housing, can't, can only afford low-cost budget airlines. <laughs> yes, enjoy, enjoy your flight on Spirit Air. <laughs> Let's get let's get to the budget and what we finally know about the budget. Um, so news broke yesterday, Thursday, that uh, Governor Newsom and legislative leaders um, here in the Capitol had finally made a deal on the policy changes that were going to accompany this big new chunk of money, over $2 billion, um, that was going to be going to housing and homelessness. Um, and we're going to break some of this down. Um, and Liam has a couple special hot takes, <laughs> as do I. Yeah. Um, so let's start with the homelessness portion of the money. Liam, you've written a decent amount about this. Yeah. What was the issue that was not resolved yet? Um, that finally was resolved yesterday. Yeah. So uh, a little, uh, just a tad bit more context. Uh, you know, the budget was supposed to be voted on and was, in fact, by the legislature on June 15th. Uh, but there's all these sort of random issues, kind of implement policy and divide up some of the money that can be voted on later. These are called in uh, capital parlance trailer bills. Trailer bills. Trailer bills because they come after ah the trail the budget. Mm. Uh, and so there were the kind of overall housing homelessness package was uh, decided on basically the amount of money that was going to be spent, but how that money was going to be divided up and the policies that were going to go alongside it, that was kind of the major sticking point in the entire state budget that was still left. So the day that uh, the budget was due, that the governor had to sign it, they finally reached a deal. Uh, and one of the main issues on homelessness was how to divide up $650 million that had been pledged to local governments and regional agencies to fight, fight homelessness. Who was going to get that money? Uh, yeah. So what we found, uh, big cities, the 13 largest cities in the state, they got the largest chunk, $275 million. Yep. Counties, 175, and these continuums of care, which are regional agencies that deal with homelessness around the state, they got 190 million. So, what was the what was the issue here? Why why did big cities feel justified in saying give all of that money to us? 
don't give it to these other entities. Right. So big cities say that, you know, we're the epicenter of the housing uh, homelessness problem uh, in the state. And also counties get a lot of money for social services, mental health, things like that already. We need money to, you know, build shelters, uh, put bathrooms up, all these sorts of things that uh, are kind of directly on the streets in these individual cities. There was a deadline regarding this money, right? Lawmakers in Newsom had to come to an agreement basically before July 1st. I don't truly understand why that was the case, but I think the important take home is this money should be able to get out. the. There won't be any delay in getting right. this money out the door because of prolonged negotiations over it, correct? Yeah, and that's obviously important. If not you know, for policy reasons, what, sure, but also politically, I mean, given the double-digit increases that you're seeing all around the state in homelessness numbers, to have a food fight, continuing food fight over dividing up a billion dollars or a significant portion of money, uh, rather than just letting it out the door, I think would not be a good look really for anybody. Let's, again, take a step back um, from which entities are actually going to receive this money, which, again, the the bulk of which will go to the construction of new homeless shelters, the continued operation of shelters, and then other homelessness services. It's not just um, housing, right? Mm -hmm. Overall, housing advocates here in the Capitol pretty happy with the overall size of the commitment here. They, they always want more and right. the, would, would argue that the crisis warrants a bigger investment. But this is the biggest um, allotment of funds from a governor towards homelessness in recent memory. Yes. Um, and that should not be ignored. However, on the flip side, yeah. um, that may not be enough um, for some localities. I'm teeing you up here. Yes. So uh, who gets the most of this money? Um, we said big cities, but what's the biggest city? Los Angeles. Los Angeles is in line for $130 million, which is a significant increase over the money and it's through a similar program that got last year. I spoke with uh, L.A. Mayor Eric Garcetti, who told me that um, uh, they're going to spend this money on their, their bridge shelter program, also on uh, bathrooms, showers, uh, laundry facilities uh, for folks that are on the streets, uh, some rental assistance, uh, eviction protections, things like that. But he also told me, this is really funny, you know, a day before, before the budget ink was dry, before the might even have been ink. Uh, L.A. City Councilmember Mitch O'Farrell, before this deal was even cooked, goes out and says, yeah, it's great. Uh, the state's going to give us some money, but actually we'd like a billion dollars more. Uh, please uh, take it from reserves. You have a lot of it. So give it to us. Um, and, you know, uh, Mayor Garcetti told me that, sure, yeah, I support that. Um, and so, I, you know, I think like even before this deal was even done, you're having pushback from folks uh, saying, not even close to being enough. And on the one hand, like, okay, um, you could see why folks in L.A. may want to uh, blame other folks for some of the problems, uh, homelessness problems in each city. But also I do think it, it does speak to the legitimate point that uh, however much money is, is given, as we just said, it's significantly more than in the past. It's really not enough to address some of the underlying problems. And also speaks to the political problem that we talked about at length on our last podcast which is um, people will begin to start asking, well, how we've authorized all this spending. Yeah. Why aren't we seeing visible results? Why, and not only and, that, why is it getting worse? And why are you yeah. continuing to ask for more money? Yep. Let's move on now to carrots and sticks when it comes to cities. And they're, oh, look, Liam's already smiling. Like a Cheshire cat I am for this one. Cheshire? How do you, how do you say it? <laughs> Cheshire? Cheshire? Cheshire cat? I don't know. I like to. I like Cheshire. To, I like to really emphasize that. Yeah. Maybe I'm wrong, but I like I like that pronunciation. Yes. Yeah, so okay. Cheshire cat eating an avocado. Yeah. That's me. So this homelessness uh, money was not the only dividing point um, between the governor and the legislature on on housing issues. Another big thing was uh, whether or not uh, there was going to be some sort of penalty that uh, cities would face for not zoning enough or not approving enough housing. This is something the governor had pushed for since he began uh, budget negotiations in January. He was talking then about uh, withholding gas tax money and something the legislature said, nah, don't like it. Mm -hmm. Don't do it. You know, stop. Um, so this was a big fight that kind of also came to a crescendo uh, on Thursday where there was a deal announced that uh, has... Um, uh, some sort of stick-like object that uh, 
that was agreed to as well, part of this process. Well, certainly the press coming off of this, um, a, a lot of the media attention was very much focused on on this stick. Yeah. Right. And how potentially punitive it is. And, you know, me and you in what we wrote and what we've talked about, I, I don't think generally this stick is as as sharp and thorny as a lot of people are making it out to be. So let's get to the stick. Yeah. What what exactly is the stick? The so, big stick. So it sounds sharp and thorny. Yes. Right. Uh, you know, at its most sticky, um, it would, uh, you know, penalize cities that aren't following through on certain ho- housing obligations with fines of up to six hundred thousand dollars a month. Yes. Uh, also, potentially, would allow a judge to take over uh, zoning to ensure, for a period of time, to in, in a city, to ensure that uh, a state-authorized housing plan gets done. Yeah. So, so a judge or an agent of the court, not someone um, from a local government or certainly not someone elected to a local government, would be in charge of... Uh, planning future housing projects or where stuff could be, right. where new developments could be placed. Right. And that, that sounds really like, wow, man, yes. big uh, big deal, right? Yeah. It, uh, it sounds like when um, somebody not from a local school district takes over a school yes. because the, the school is underperforming and right. that either upsets or elates a lot of people, depending on your perspective. Sure, sure. But the problem here is, I think it's two. One, uh, who this would actually apply to, and two, like the hoops through which a, a city would have to jump or perhaps not jump uh, to get to That's a point right. where these penalties would actually come into effect. That's right. So, the, so to your first point, who this actually applies to. Imagine a pie, Liam. You've been, work, you've been working on this. I like it. Imagine yeah. a pie. Okay. Are you with me? I am. What type of pie are you picturing? Boysenberry. Why? <laughs> Why boysenberry? <laughs> Just to get the reaction from you. <laughs> what is your favorite pie? Wait, can I guess? Uh, sure. Okay. Um, key lime. I just could guess. I had some delicious key lime pie in Florida when I lived there. Mm. Uh, but I'm a strawberry rhubarb man. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's not as upsetting as I thought it was going to be. So boysenberry pie. Yes. Liam's tell, favorite. Tell us about... The uh, the pies that were de- that were that I'm picturing now in my head. So in addition to the boys and berries, imagine that in the pie is every city in California where there is a imbalance between how much money people make and what the price of an affordable apartment or home is. Really big pie. Okay. That's that's a huge swath of cities, so right? There are, there's 539 cities and counties, mm-hmm. and so maybe uh, let's say a pretty large percentage of, of them are in this pie we're in now. Exactly, yeah. especially if the pie was weighted by population size. Oh yeah. Uh-huh. So you get a big LA slice, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, now let's take a chunk off that pie. Yeah. And we'll only look at cities that are not meeting their state mandated housing goals. So you mean where production is not meeting what those goals are. Exactly. Yeah. Actually, new units coming online that the state right. says, you guys should be permitting these new units yeah. to meet these numbers. Yeah. A big chunk of the pie remains, yes. but gone are cities like Beverly Hills. That's right. Which is meeting its housing goals. Yeah. Uh, and some cities in the Bay Area. Yes. That list, too. Some very expensive cities in the Bay Area yeah. technically meeting their housing goals. Yeah. But you still got a pretty big pie because right. most cities aren't, right? right? Mm-hmm. Now we're going to chop off the slice that these new punishments in Newsom's budget could actually affect. Okay. Um, And that is cities that are not in compliance with state housing element law. You make it sound really bureaucratic. It is very bureaucratic. Yeah. Basically, that means that they they have a really, really bad plan or no plan for where they're going to put housing. Where they wouldn't want to allow it, right? Exactly. Mm -hmm. Cities that just don't care about what the state is telling them um, or are woefully under-resourced and literally can't get someone to produce a housing plan, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That knocks it down to about 42 cities. 42 of the As 539. A, exactly. Yeah, so that, that's like, that's a little, I mean, that's barely, and that's like, you know, barely in the pie that you'd have with breakfast, you it, know? I mean, that's like a really small You're slice. You're a breakfast pie guy? Well, only like you don't want a really tiny slice because it's kind of sweet, right? So like you'd want like, you want like a, like a really small slice, but this is even smaller, I think, than the pie you'd want for breakfast. Okay, I think that's fair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I've thought about it now. Yes. Um, 
if this pie was weighted by population, yeah. there are some very, very small cities in that leftover piece of the pie. Have you heard of the city of Trinidad? No. You're lying because we talked about this yeah. before the podcast. <laughs> Just trying for effect here, man. But there yeah. is a Trinidad, California. Yeah. That would be one of these non-compliant cities that conceivably these new penalties where a judge could wreak havoc with your housing yeah. plan could apply to. Population less than 500. 360. Trinidad. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Small. Pretty small. Yeah. I'm going to read some others on this list. Okay. Um, Holtville, population about 6,500. Okay. Um, Bradbury. Population about a thousand. Okay. If you go through the list, many of these cities are rural and small. Yes. Um, even cities that are not so rural, that are in LA County, let's say, where where a bunch of these cities are, yeah. are still population wise pretty small. Yeah. So, and there is not one Bay Area city in this list, as I pointed out. Yes. On Twitter, mm-hmm. yes, these news punishments in some ways are stronger, but again, the scope of places where they would actually apply is limited even before we get into the timing of this. Yeah. So that another limitation is uh, how long it would take for these uh, communities actually to face these gigantic penalties that are out there. So let's take, for example, um, Huntington Beach. This is the city in Orange County, mm-hmm. kind of the poster child of this. Uh, the governor, uh, one of his first actions in his first month, uh, first few weeks in office, uh, authorized a lawsuit against them for violating this uh, or allegedly violating this this state uh, housing planning law. So uh, that case authorized or began in January. We're uh, nearing July or in July by what time you're listening to this. Uh you know, we're at a status conference in this case. We're not even close to this case being resolved. Mm-hmm. So for this penalty to apply to Huntington Beach, we're going to use them as the example, uh, that Huntington Beach would first have to lose the case. So we're a long way away from deci- from a decision in this case, number one. Then there'd be a year, a yep. year by which Huntington Beach could come into compliance. Following that year, a judge would then have to say, oh, okay, you know, you guys are still thumbing your nose, lifting your middle finger, or whatever kind of thing you want to say about uh, their reaction to the state. Then we may start assessing these some of these fines, starting at ten grand a month or, you know, relatively small amount mm-hmm. for a city's Huntington Beach's size, right? Um, and then, then it would only then go to this kind of larger and larger and larger number. And then even months after that, written into the statute, I don't even have, even, I don't even have all the months-long delays in, in my head, right? Uh, that would only be the time where we could talk about a judge potentially ordering Huntington Beach to have a new zoning plan. And I'll say this now. I, I do need to report this out more and, and hope to after we record the podcast. But there are rumblings that the way they actually wrote this language, that in some ways, because of the timeline you mentioned, yeah. cities are at more of an advantage than they were um, under AB 72, which was the law passed in 2017 that they used to sue Huntington Beach. Yep. Um, so stay tuned for that. Overall, what do you make of the limitations of these punishments? I mean, they're extremely limited. It's and tough for me to imagine a world in which anything like this would actually happen to, to a community. I guess it's certainly possible that it's a deterrent, um, in some respects, but again, it's really hard to, really hard to imagine a world in which this, this any like, anything like this would actually come to fruition. Um, let's also compare it to what was originally proposed back in January, which was, You don't get gas tax money. You don't get money to fix your potholes if you are not meeting your housing production goals. That's what Newsom said. This is a long way removed from that. In these provisions, a judge could use money from the state to pay the fines. Um, But that it's different. And again, just this small subset of cities that population wise aren't that big. Yeah. Um, What's a long way away. And and again, we should, you know, I think there's always a caveat, you know, cities don't build housing. They, you know, to to, to tie state funding to actual production is a really hard thing to do. Legitimate argument. Legitimate argument. You know, also you don't want to, you know, I think your target is maybe communities that are, that were experiencing large job growth or desirable communities to live in. But a lot of the, a lot of the communities that aren't meeting their housing production numbers are in, you know, rural areas or areas with high unemployment where there's not demand for housing the same way there is along the 
the coast. Mm-hmm. And you obviously don't want to penalize, say, cities in Imperial County uh, further than they are now. Um, yeah. For, you know, for not having jobs or, or, or tax revenue there. Imperial so, County, yeah. a, a lower income county in uh, southeast California. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. By San Diego County. Yep. To Newsom's credit, could you imagine something like this coming out in uh, a brown budget deal? Uh, sort of, maybe. Really? Yeah. yeah, I yeah I could. I mean, he would. You know, he he put forward the the original um, uh, version of a plan that would have streamlined uh, uh, you know local processes. that ultimately got passed through Senate Bill thirty five in twenty seventeen. Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, Brown was certainly. Um, uh, kind to the argument that uh, local government processes are, were and are a key driver of uh, some of the state's housing problems. So I don't think he would have had a problem with something with something like this. No, I don't think he would have a problem with yeah. it. But the question is whether he would leverage the budget process to get some of this stuff, even as diluted as we've described it. Sure. And I, we saw no evidence of that. I, yeah. I don't. Yeah. I mean. Yeah, that's that, that's all right. Yeah, yeah that's fair. I mean, I'm I'm yeah. giving the Newsom administration credit for yeah. placing this as a priority and trying to get something there. Well, um, and and let, why don't I piggyback on that? I, yeah, you know, I, I do think there's a world in which these these punishments may matter um, ultimately, and that's a world in which you dramatically change the housing goal process or the housing planning process. Mm-hmm. If you have a world where you set you're going to dramatically increase the amount of homes that certain communities have to plan for and those communities say no screw you state we're not going to do it i don't care what you what you say mm-hmm. in a world where there's no punishment for that that's pretty easy easy thing to do but if you you know start going down the road where these punishments seem you know clear and strong and legit and all those sorts of things um, i think it could be a lot more meaningful and so if you move from a world where only 42 cities out of 539 are not in compliance uh, you know, and some of the bigger, wealthier communities, some Bay Area communities, some of these sorts of areas have to plan for a lot more housing. They don't want to. The threat of even years down the road, a big stick could could ultimately matter. Some of the cities on this list are uh, have reputations. They're fairly notorious in terms of not having good housing plans or just exclusionary housing generally. Right. Encinitas sure. is on this list. Encinitas, northern San Diego coastal city. Yes. Um, you know, uh, never had a state approved housing plan. Mm-hmm. Only city of any legitimate size that where that has been the case. Mm-hmm. Um, would it be better for the state, for Encinitas uh, generally, to um, have a plan that would allow for Probably. more growth? Yeah. Yeah, it's a wealthy community in northern San Diego coast. More people would live in Encinitas if they were allowed to. One other thing that uh, did end up as part of this budget trailer uh, agreement, there was somewhat of a breakthrough on making it easier to build and site homeless shelters. Yeah, so um, you may be aware of fights that are going on in the Venice neighborhood in L.A., also in San Francisco, about uh, about homeless shelters. Uh, neighborhood group opponents there are using the California Environmental Quality Act, uh, a law that we've talked a lot about um, on our podcast, to uh, uh, resist the building of shelters in their communities. They, uh, part of this plan, though, uh, would um, uh, allow those shelters to be built with that way while having to avoid uh, the CEQA process. And so that would, uh, you know, at least in the case of San Francisco, uh, that would uh, have uh, cut out a lot of the, uh, potentially cut out a lot of the Sturm und Drang, if you will, over that fight in that city. Last thing, we have tried to get someone from the Newsom administration on this podcast multiple times. Um, we would, I mean, just so you guys know that that perspective we have been trying to solicit and yes. so far crickets. Yes, unfortunate. Yeah. Do you take that personally? No. No? can never take any of this stuff personally. <laughs> <laughs> Matt's laughing because I often take things personally. Yes. So. <laughs> yes. But in all honesty, even though I may complain uh, about taking things personally, I actually don't in this respect. Mm. Um, well, I mean, we're not Axios, man. <laughs> we're not Axios. What are you going to do? Wow. Maybe if we get HBO. <laughs> HBO, who wouldn't want to watch this, right? <laughs> Two guys sweating in a studio talking about sequel reform. All right, let's talk about tech and housing. Yeah. So uh, you may have seen recent news uh, about Google um, deciding to invest a billion dollars in addressing housing issues in the Bay Area. The lion's share of that uh 
a quote-unquote investment. Three-quarters of it is going towards uh, Google saying, for land that we own now, uh, $750 million worth of it, uh, we're going to work to rezone that from commercial to residential and get 15,000 homes built on that on that land. Uh, so that was a big uh, announcement the company made. This follows one. That was done earlier this year from uh, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, which is the philanthropic arm of uh, Mark Zuckerberg, Facebook's founder, to mm-hmm. invest uh, $500 million, uh, to do similar things, uh, support uh, the building of low-income housing in, in the Bay Area. And I think all of this is generated by uh, this argument, which is in louder and louder, about, look, uh, you know, the— the, the tech industry is bringing a lot of jobs here, and some people may say that's good. Some people may may not, uh, but those jobs certainly have impacts on our housing market uh, and a driver of uh, rising housing costs in the Bay Area and increasingly around the rest of the state. And so there's this uh, energy, I think. Why is the tech industry doing more uh, to address some of the problems that, uh, that many people see them being at least at part uh, at the root of? And what can the tech industry do? Uh, well, they could do a lot of things. Uh, they could dedicate land, as Google is doing. They mm-hmm. could dedicate money, as Google, I guess, is in part doing. Uh, Facebook is is, is uh, considering doing, too. They could uh, say, hey, tax us more uh, if it goes to housing. That's a thing they could do that they're really not, for the most part. Yes, um, unlikely. Unlikely. But uh, there certainly are things that, you know, they could say as, as part of a, uh, you know, there's just a lot of talk about jobs, housing balance, right? Uh, that's kind of a, you know, a, a regular thing that you hear, particularly in the Bay area a lot more jobs are created than homes to build them they could have policies like well if we're going to bring a a campus i think apple's traditionally the one that people uh, argue about the most that giant new spaceship uh, that Mm -hmm. they have in cupertino uh came without uh you know subsequent home building Mm -hmm. right uh they could have a policy that says if we're going to bring x number of office jobs then that means we need to support the building of x number of homes go alongside it uh there's a lot of things they could do do we expect any other industry to self-regulate in that way? No. Interesting, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Why do you think we expect tech to do that? Because uh, of their outsized presence here, I think. I mean, again, the, also the fact that they're, these are you know, the most valuable companies in the world. That's exact. So right. two reasons I would yeah. say mm-hmm. um, to answer my own question. Yes. Yes. Mm-hmm. Teeing it up. People, I think, lose sight that these are some of the biggest companies in the history of the world. Yes. Uh-huh. Uh, in terms of at least market capitalization, but also in terms of um, staff size, right? Yep. So the the wealth there is absolutely staggering. And then second, I think the tech companies for a long time, and again, I don't mean to paint a broad brush, but I certainly think this is true of Google and Facebook, have spun a narrative of our products are saving the world. Right. Or at least doing good and solving problems, yeah. right? Yeah. yeah. Um, so if you're doing that while at the same time um, not addressing the most devastating issue in your backyard, which is housing costs, I think people have an expectation of, well, you guys are so good yeah. and so noble. Right. Why don't you do something about this right here? Right. If your moderate motto is don't be evil, but you see um, – yes you know, uh, evil occurring in your backyard, uh, then that's a conflict. Uh, linking this back to tech in the capital yeah. um, and the budget, actually, yeah. um, in January, Newsom, in that same budget presentation where he was talking about the link between, the inextricable link between transportation and housing, mm. um, he also talked about, hey, we're going to get tech companies to pony up some money here. Whatever happened to that? Didn't happen. So he had, had uh, and this is really weird. If you went back and checked the tape, which I of course did, um, he <laughs> he uh, brought this up at pretty much apropos of nothing. Uh, so he was asked a question about whether whether the state budget was going to calculate uh, IPO revenue from Uber and others that are tech companies that are planning to to, uh, to 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 go out this year. And he said, you know, look, we'll make whatever you know projections that we're supposed to make, right? But he pivoted tech word, uh, from, from that uh, answer to say, and by the way, uh, I'm talking with tech company CEOs about contributing a half billion dollars to some of the housing goals or housing plans that I have uh, in, in the budget for, for mixed, income, uh, mixed income housing. And uh, we're counting on that. I'll tell you that much. Uh, but by the time we got to May, uh, that was not, not no longer the case. We're here with uh, Catherine Bracey of the Tech Equity Collaborative. Catherine, so, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. 
So tell us a little about what the Tech Equity Collaborative is and what you do. Yeah, I started uh, Tech Equity about three and a half years ago now after Uber announced that they were buying the old Sears department store in downtown Oakland. Many of you may remember that. Um, And the community reacted quite negatively to that announcement. Um, And I happened to live across the street from that building, so I was very interested in uh, what was happening there from a a personal perspective, um, but also professionally. Uh, My background is at the intersection of technology and civics, and so I was very... Uh, kind of my imagination was captured by this big tech company at the time, the most valuable privately held company in the world, bringing thousands of good jobs to um, a place like downtown Oakland, where the median income is $25,000 a year or so, and the community not seeing value in that. Um, And of course, it wasn't actually surprising to me. um, But that moment uh, sort of crystallized something for me um, about what was happening in the Bay Area and um, got me doing a lot of thinking about uh, what this meant for the future sustainability of our economy, Um, and more importantly, what it would take to get us out. I grew up in um, southeastern Michigan outside of Detroit in the 80s, and at that time, if a company um, had announced that they were moving thousands of good jobs to downtown Detroit, there would have been a parade. And, um, And so I recognized that something fundamental had shifted in our economy, and I was thinking about, you know, was was this just late-stage capitalism coming home to roost in Oakland, or was there something, you know, specific to the Bay Area, specific to the tech industry, um, and what would need to change in order for us to um, get to a place where a tech company could make it a similar announcement and the community would see shared value in that. So, um, so tech equity was really built to answer that question. How do we create a tech-driven economy in the Bay Area um, and increasingly across California? Um, that is creating opportunity for everybody, um, building an inclusive economy uh, instead of driving displacement and inequality. Um, so I actually used to live close to that Sears building, too, um, right up the street in Lake Merritt. And Uber ended up backing off, right? They, they did, yeah. So what happened? They sold it to just a, a, a commercial real estate developer um, who has now leased all of the office space to Square. Um, and we are working with Square. Uh, Square asked us to help them figure out how they move into Oakland in a way that is going to create as much value as possible for the broad community, Um, and that's really an exciting opportunity given that that building was really key to our founding story. So So, Go ahead, Matt. Oh, okay. So I just wanted to actually drill in on the Detroit analogy because I think that's actually an interesting one. So um, when someone like Uber or some company like Uber announces that it's going to create X number of jobs by moving into a new location in the Bay Area, I think a lot of people in the Bay Area, um, especially longtime residents, will think, well, those jobs aren't going to go to people already here. Those jobs are going to go to the CS major, to the computer science major coming from uh, NYU, coming from, yeah, coming often coming from out of state or or other parts of California. That's not going to your um, renter in West Oakland. Whereas in Detroit, um, you know, uh, if there's a new plant opening up, that's more of a has a blue collar feel to it where the current residents could uh, benefit from it. Is that a, a wrong impression? No, I think that was probably most, uh, I think that along with the fact that um, because of that housing crisis, we've got this, you know, squeeze, which creates a zero-sum economy. If 2,500 Uber employers are coming in my neighborhood, then 2,500 of us have to go kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Um, So those two things were driving that dynamic where the community was saying, this isn't, there's no value here for us. This is actually a threat and not an opportunity. Um, and they're not wrong. And um, and that's one of the things we're trying to address with Square. Um, you know, it's not an, I, diversity isn't even enough, right? If you're just hiring, you know, uh, black CS grads from Atlanta to move to Oakland and take those jobs, then that still creates displacement pressure for Oakland, local Oakland right. communities. Um, and so we're trying to figure out how do we make sure that as Square is hiring into that building and, and really as they're hiring for new roles in San Francisco, um, uh, that, they're, that they are have access to what is a really a deep well of talent um, from Oakland. And it's not all, I mean, I think it's a um, misconception that all these jobs are technical jobs. They're not. And um, 
a lot of the roles, you know, don't require any technical skill and they're still good jobs. And, and there, you know, there are people who are qualified for those jobs who come from communities in Oakland that um, haven't gotten access to these kinds of opportunities in the past. So the question is really, how do we make those connections? And, um, you know, so far Square has been really open to um, having that conversation and doing the things that we've suggested that they do. So when I, uh, have talked to folks um, in, say, Silicon Valley and Palo Alto, Cupertino, some of these other communities, a lot of times they make uh, arguments that sound similar to, and I'm talking kind of, you know, homeowners in those communities, make arguments that sound in a lot of ways similar to your arguments, which is, um, look, we're concerned about uh, these new jobs coming in and, and displacing folks or um, creating this kind of, you know, class of folks that are not um, not from here, things like that. Um, so just a couple of questions for you on that. One, do you hear those you know, arguments a lot from from folks that are, uh, say, you know, homeowners in, in Silicon Valley? And two, how do you parse those arguments? Uh, are they different in kind or an emphasis from, from what you're talking about? So usually that argument ends with, and therefore the solution is send those jobs to Kansas City. I don't understand why we need to grow the economy here. You know, um, company X don't move to Oakland, move to, you know, Birmingham or wherever. Yeah. Uh, we're full. And that, to me, is both um, just from a practical perspective, really uh, self-defeating and, uh, you know, not good for the economy, frankly, um, but also really, um, uh, you know, morally, I think there's a, a, like a, a, a moral angle to that argument that is really ugly um, and uh, that's not what, when I moved to California, that's not w- the kind of place I thought I was moving to, you know, the home of the resistance and, um, bright, you know, celebrating diversity and, um, to tell people, um, you know, you can't be here. Anyone to tell anyone that is, I think really goes against some fundamental values that I hold. Um, and so our answer to that, you know, uh, you know, the, the, next uh, phrase or clause in that sentence isn't, and therefore you should leave. It's, and therefore, how do we fix the structural challenges that California has that make it so hard for us to, um, you know, absorb and include all of the people that we should be able to uh, absorb and include? So uh, Google recently announced a a billion-dollar investment in, uh, you know, predominantly uh, well in housing and predominantly most of that is is building housing on its own uh, land that it currently owns what what's uh, your reaction to to that announcement and, and, and where do you think uh, it could be uh, it could be stronger than what it, what it is now so I was actually on vacation when this came out and I didn't I haven't dug fully in did they say they would build the housing on the land they were donating or no. they were just going to donate land to developers to build housing more the latter than the former yeah okay. And that, that that land is not zoned for residential. Correct. Apparently. So so the argument, at least in their, their kind of lengthy uh, blog post about this, was they would move, that's the value of the land that they would move to rezone from commercial to residential. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think we should be talking about this as a $250 million investment. Mm-hmm. I mean, let's be honest. You, you know as well as I do that the likelihood of seeing all that turn into $750 million worth of affordable housing is unlikely. Um, having said that, I think it's great, um, and I would like to encourage other companies uh, to think similarly. Um, what I think is really interesting about it is um, the money is good. And I, you know, five years ago, if you had had a conversation with Google or any other tech tech company and said. Um, we need you to think about housing and um, this is an issue you should care about, they would have looked at you like you were crazy. Um, and so I think it says something about both the depth of the crisis that we're in, but also the willingness of, of tech companies to understand their role here. And I'll, I'll take some credit for that at Tech Equity of raising this uh, issue. Um, that's, a, that's a good thing. Um, but the money isn't enough you know, if if you can't actually, and I think they're going to learn this as they try to work with cities and communities to get that land rezoned, we also have to build the political power 
um, to so that we actually have the space and the ability to build that housing. Um, it's not just a uh, dollars and cents problem. It's a it's a policy and political will problem. And I think that that area is still harder for some of the big tech companies to understand as their problem. Why? Uh, that you know, companies don't like to be political, especially about stuff that's not directly in their you know business interest. Um, I mean, I could make an argument that housing is, but right. I, you know, I'm not sure that the CEO of Alphabet would share that. Um, so uh, they're just risk averse. They're looking at, um, you know, they're doing a very sort of conservative assessment of what it's going to cost them to step out on this issue. And um, you know, I think many times they're uh, deciding that it costs them less um, to stay silent um, than to delve into the muckiness that is housing politics in California. I mean, it's not a fun place to be working. Um, so, I mean, I don't necessarily blame them, but honestly, if they're if they do seriously care about solving the problem, you you don't really have a choice. Well, and you also see, I mean, uh, you know, and this is my, my question to you. I mean, I, you know, there is a backlash that that, that I see in reporting on, on this um, to tech uh, as a, a driver or the driver or one of the main causes of 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 uh, housing problems in the Bay Area and across the state. And, we, of course, we can debate the extent to which that, that that's true and the nuances in that argument. But certainly these companies have to be feeling the heat from uh, literally everybody, right, uh, that they're part of, the part of, if not the problem, for why um, housing costs are so high, right? Yeah, and, I mean, I'd say the companies are feeling it, but m- more than that, the people who work at these companies are feeling it. Yeah. And, um, and that... That, for me, is really uh, where this starts to feel like a tragic missed opportunity. So, you know, if you're making $80,000 a year working as a, you know, uh, marketing manager at a tech company, you're not the enemy. Um, But you're getting spit on when you walk to the bus stop and you're constantly reading things about how techies are destroying the community. And that's not what you want to be viewed as. Um, And so I think for those folks, uh, they want to be part of the solution and, and they're being, they feel very alienated from that process. And I feel like there's an opportunity to sort of um, create the space where, um, you know, we're honest about what the causes of the crisis are. We're not letting anybody off the hook, but we're also not demonizing and, you know, factionalizing I mean, we're certainly not going to solve this crisis if we're if we're fractured. Um, is a a per head employee tax a good idea or bad idea? Um, it de- kind of depends on the context. I mean, I in general um, think that that's the wrong frame to be thinking about this. I want to more fun. I mean, I think that we are living in a world that Prop 13 created, and we don't even know it. And so we look at the landscape and see the available options that we have as, you know, local government or, you know, communities to capture some of the value that is being created by this booming industry. And we have one hand tied behind our back. And so the only thing we can really do are, you know, IPO taxes or uh, head taxes or whatever these things are, because um, Prop 13 has created such a corrupted landscape in terms of, um, you know, raising revenue and how um, uh, revenue would be more proportional to the wealth that's being created if if local governments are actually allowed to capture the value that's being developed. Obviously, tech companies own a lot of valuable property in the Bay Area. Much of that ownership is relatively new compared to, let's say, um, the famous example of Disneyland, right, who is mm-hmm. paying very low, prop- well, relatively low property taxes because they've been, they've owned um, that property since the 60s or even prior to that. Tech companies could be taxed more um, because of split role. How, how do they feel about this? Uh, well, they, I mean, they wouldn't really. I'll say two things. First, because they've bought their properties or they became owners of their properties relatively recently, um, they're paying close to market value, um, mm-hmm. so they're, they're assessed at close to market value, and so 
their taxes wouldn't go up that much if split roll happened. But also, I mean, we don't hear a lot, even if you're looking like 50 or 60 years down the road, there isn't a lot of fear about paying taxes. Um, my sense is they don't have an issue with paying taxes so much as they have been reacting to, you know, what they see as punitive taxes or taxes that are just hard to administer internally. So like the stock-based compensation tax um, and that's been proposed in San Francisco. Uh, the, you know, changing the structure so that we're, we're, uh, we're addressing all companies and corporations equally, that, it's, that it makes sense from a fiscal perspective, that it's sustainable, that the revenue is going to um, fund things that they really need, you know, infrastructure investments, public transportation, public education, affordable housing, mental health services, all of these things that, you know, they recognize as a problem and that they – um, think is, you know, fixing them is good for their business. How much of your work is oriented to local issues in the Bay Area and how much of it is focused on um, what is happening in Sacramento statewide or even uh, federal policy? Um, you know, not well, it's all sort of connected, right? And I think, sure. you know, we're having this local versus state control conversation now. Um, it turns out that working in Sacramento is the easiest way to get anything done on a local level. And if we were just fighting all these battles with, you know, all the dozens of Bay Area cities, then that would be a lot less effective than just trying to get something passed in Sacramento. Um, so uh, I would say most of our focus is on state, you know, things that are in the jurisdiction of the state, but that have an impact on the local level. You got anything else, Liam? No. Uh, anything you want? Anything else, Catherine? You want to make sure that we know, or our audience knows? Yeah, I mean, I guess I will just say, our if it hasn't come across, like I think it's really important not for. I'm not asking, you know, members of the community who aren't involved in the tech industry to to give tech a pass here. I think it's really important that we hold companies accountable. But I also think it's really, you know, we have to think pragmatically about how we get to solutions and alienating tech and and looking at the people who work in the industry as the enemy is really not helping us get there. It's also um, many times not fair. Like these are allies um, that if we assumed good faith on their, on their part um, could really help advance these issues um, for us. So for those of us who care about solving the housing crisis, who are pro housing, um, I think we need to figure out how to build bridges and not walls between these factions. And despite our differences, find some common ground that we can, uh, we can build on because, no pun intended, because um, the opposition, the real opposition, the NIMBYs, um, are very powerful and they're getting more powerful. Are are tech workers and NIMBYs, though, mutually exclusive? I feel like we um, tend to do that mostly. mental... Hopefully. <laughs> no, I so, mean, I think most... When you, did you say tech workers and NIMBYs, mm -hmm. mutually exclusive? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean... Really? I'm sure there are some NIMBYs in the tech world, but I'd say, you know, to the extent that people, that tech workers think about themselves in these terms, um, the vast majority of them would be, would consider themselves, you know, YIMBY or pro-housing for sure. Mm. All right. Catherine, oh. thanks so much for joining us. We're here with Marisa Kendall. She's a housing reporter with the Bay Area News Group, a collection of papers that includes the San Jose Mercury News. Marisa, thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So why don't we start, tell us a little about yourself, how you got into covering this issue. Yeah, so I started my career covering murders in Florida, uh, which was great. And then... Um, that does sound great. Oh, yeah, Florida is the best place to be a crime reporter. Real Agreed. great learning experience. And then moved uh, over here, over to the, uh, the Bay Area. And I started covering tech, mostly startups and venture capital for the Mercury News. And then about a year and a half ago, our paper launched a housing team, specifically focused on covering housing because the editors realized that was the most important issue people were facing right now is the housing crisis. So they recruited me as part of that team, and I just got a real quick crash course in housing politics and policies and all of the craziness that makes up 
this sector that you guys have been steeped in for a little bit longer. So what was the biggest thing, either surprise or uh, thing you didn't expect when you began uh, writing about this, something that was maybe more complicated than you thought or, or something that maybe even was more simple than you thought? I think the main thing I wasn't prepared for was how ugly some of this gets. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, especially the, the fights online on Nextdoor and on <laughs> Twitter between people who whose housing politics and views differ. It's just so intense. And I, I, I wasn't prepared for that. And the more and more I'm delving into these online nooks and crannies, the more I'm seeing that. And it's, um, it's a little bit fascinating. So I want to talk a little bit about the um, Google billion dollar investment in somehow addressing the Bay Area housing shortage. What, what's been the reaction in the Bay Area to that news? Well, from housing advocates and, and from some of those uh, types of more public figures who, who get involved in, in advocating for housing in these debates, there's a lot of, um, of, of excitement and, and cheering. You know, I think, I think also people are, are very careful to um, not be too cynical about things like this. You know, they, they really want tech companies to contribute. And even if, you know, like you said, I think you said like, what, alleged $1 billion, um, even though it's not, there are, you know, it might not make the, the hugest difference in the world. There's some technicalities with that $1 billion number. It's still something. So a lot of them are cheering, though you do have some cynicism over how, how, you know, how much will it really help and could could they do more that kind of thing so on the land that so the predominant part of this uh investment is building on land that google already owns right um so where where is do you expect the this potential growth to be uh, and how much of that was already in the works before this announcement yeah, um, so my understanding is it'll be around in San Jose by the new plans, uh, like Google Village, that they're planning, if you will, by Deridon Station. And all of that's been in the works for a long time. Like my colleague, George Avalos, has reported, they've been buying up property there for a while. They've been planning this for a while. And actually, those homes, I mean, they had they had promised for a while that they would build homes there. So the, none of that's really new. The, the numbers were already there. Um they, with this new announcement, they did also include an extra $250 million that they want to invest um, into affordable housing in the area that they won't build, but that somebody else can, which could account for another 5,000 homes. Mm-hmm. But a lot of this is stuff we kind of already knew that they were going to do. Um, would you live in, in one of the home, the new Google homes in, 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 in one of these properties? That's a good question. I mean, I'm not usually a fan of like the really like the really modern like kind of corporatized apartments like Santana Row, for example, like isn't that appealing to me personally? Yeah. And that's in San Jose. What? Santana Row, that's in San Jose. That's in that's in San Jose. Yeah, that's yeah. like a um it's kind of like a shopping mall plus apartments and condos one of those kinds of situations yeah but i mean if it was affordable you know and there weren't that many options then sure i i guess for for me there's i don't know there's just something odd about the idea of i would be a non-google employee living on google property in a house that Google allowed to be developed. Do you know what I'm saying? Well, like, you're like, this is the company town thing. Exactly. Right? Yeah. I mean, do, it, it, how much of this do you, th- I mean, wh- when I tweeted about this, every third tweet, some s- smart guy thought he was saying something new about calling this a company town. Uh, but I, <laughs> but I do think this, this sentiment is out there uh, that this is like another going back to whatever, when, whenever these were built during the gold rush or whatever. I mean, you know, how much of that sentiment are you hearing from people after this announcement? Yeah, there's a lot of that, and I've heard that. Yeah, I've heard that company town line a lot. Um, but it's it's not just with these. You know, you have um, there's been other developers who have floated. You know, building um, you know like a single apartment that includes like co-working space plus you know units just for employees. 
And then also Stanford has been doing this for decades, right. if you think about yeah, it. Right. You know, they're like one of the biggest employers and biggest landowners in um, Silicon Valley, and they have a ton of homes they only allow professors and staff members to live in. And in a lot of them, if you leave the university, you have to leave your house, mm. um, which, you know, on one hand, it's, it's creating housing for their workers. But then on the other hand, um, that, that, I mean, that's weird when you, you lose your job or leave your job and now you have no house. I mean, that's an odd, odd thing to have to grapple with. I'm curious, generally speaking, how much do people blame tech in the Bay Area for housing problems? Well, I can give you an exact statistic, actually, because um, recently we our newspaper reported on a poll that we did with the Silicon Valley Leadership Group. And one of the questions we asked people throughout the Bay Area was, like, who do you blame for the housing crisis? And 48 um, percent of people said tech companies were a major contributor. But actually, surprisingly, more than that, people blamed developers. 57% of people blamed developers for the housing crisis, which is kind of counterintuitive because developers are the ones building the homes that supposedly will get us out of the housing crisis. But people were saying, well, they don't build enough affordable housing. They right. don't take our, you know, the actual needs of the people into consideration. There was a lot of talk when um, some major tech companies had their IPOs in recent months that the, I mean, the Bay Area housing market was already screwed, and now whatever is worse than screwed, completely screwed, uh, dystopian hellscape, whatever it is, <laughs> that this was going to be the nail in the coffin. Um, has that proven to be the case? Is it too early to judge? Um, what What's going on with that storyline? Yeah, um so it's funny because the New York Times had that really fascinating but also really scary story about how, yeah, this was just going to ruin everything. Um, and then we actually we had a story about it that was a little more nuanced, a little. Yeah, a little, well, a little <laughs> less scary. Um, my colleague Lou Hansen wrote it and the realtors he talked to really said, eh, I mean, you know, when, when Facebook and, and those companies had their IPOs like you saw maybe a little bump, you know, months after, after people could actually sell their stock, but it wasn't, you know, it's not really a big factor. And that's what we're seeing. We're actually seeing prices uh, going down year over year in the past couple months. So we're, we're not really seeing that, um, that crisis scenario, though people are worried that the, um, the whole Google campus and, you know, once all that really gets going, which will still be several years from now, that that will actually, you know, raise prices uh, there in that in that area. In this San is the Jose. one around San Jose. Oh, yeah, around the station, not not Mountain View. No, no, around the San Jose campus. Yeah. So I wanted to ask when I was reporting uh, a lot about um, when Senate Bill 50, the, the build up zone uh, or increased density around transit stops and also in single family neighborhoods was hot and active. I spent a lot of time in uh, Silicon Valley uh, because that was where a lot of the opposition was. And the arguments I kept hearing from uh, folks was um, some version of um, and this is probably not not super flattering to their argument, but but some version of uh, we have too many jobs here. Uh, that's the underlying problem. It's these tech jobs that are that are coming in that are, you know, co contributing or the underlying source of the housing problems in the region and are forcing uh, prices up so much. And I guess I wonder, you know, and on the other and again, like there's obviously some criticism of that perspective, because how can you look like gift jobs in the mouth? Right. Um, and so I'm wondering how much you hear uh, the kind of the notion that we have too many jobs in Silicon Valley in the Bay Area. And, and that's really the underlying problem. Yeah, I, I hear that a lot. Um, but it is it's such a tough question because what do you do about that? I mean, the people who are arguing that, I mean, they don't want, you don't want these tech companies to leave. I mean, these are what makes Silicon Valley Silicon Valley. You know, you don't want to have a recession. You don't want people to be unemployed. So um, what do you do? I mean, some cities around here are restricting new commercial development um, in some areas, like Palo Alto has done that. Um, but also, I, I feel like sometimes it is sort of a distraction to say that from the issue of 
building more homes. Um, I often hear the complaint when new housing is proposed, uh, even if it's you know a substantial amount of housing, a substantial amount of affordable housing, it often comes with new office space. And critics will say, well, this, you know, this is going to make the, ba- the balance worse because we're adding new office and we're not adding enough new housing. But then housing advocates will point out, well, you need the office to help pay for the affordable housing you're going to build. You really can't build a development and make it pencil out without that office space. So that argument is just a way to quash any housing from getting built. So I've heard that a lot in, in Cupertino. Is that the where, where they're talking about kind of tearing down that mall, the Valco Mall, and, and, and rebuilding in a large uh, commercial complex, but also 2,400 homes, too? Is that is that the kind of the battle you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, that's definitely one uh, big example of it. That's, that's an argument that comes up a lot. But it's interesting because you hear, you know, affordable housing advocates I talk to do not make that argument. They just right. say this is great. It's, it's a lot of affordable housing. We need it. You know, we're not as worried about the office space it includes. So what's the biggest fight right now over a particular project that you're tracking in Silicon Valley? Um, Valco is still going strong. It's a gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> <laughs> um, now they, there's, uh, it's, it's likely going to go forward under SB 35. They're going to be able to build that, though um, if for some reason that fails, the city was moving forward to uh, rezone the land. So in the future, it, it could only be, uh, it, it couldn't have any residential space. Um, there's the Brisbane Baylands uh, right. fight, yeah. mm-hmm. which is they uh, that's been going on for years over whether they can build a pretty massive housing development there that would drastically increase the size of, of the city because it's not very big. But that, um, and that, that was that's also right on the border with San Francisco. So it's just weird situation where you have this obviously very large city with this kind of tiny community literally on the doorstep. Exactly. So it could attract a lot of people who work in San Francisco. So obviously a big boon for San Francisco, but the city itself um, was, was not really ready for that. Uh, but they put it on, on the ballot, and now it's in it. they approved that housing, so now that is going to go forward, and they're trying to figure out how to, uh, how, to how to deal with all that, you know, how to uh, you know get themselves ready for all that new housing. So that was really controversial for a long time, really like kind of divided the city. Up here at the state level, I know Liam has actually referred to tech in terms of housing politics as a sleeping giant. And I tend to somewhat agree with that. Tech is there in the argument, but they're certainly not as mobilized as they are maybe around uh, data privacy issues here, right? Um, What's your sense on how mobilized they are at the local level? Yeah, that, that's a good question, because you do hear every now and then, you know, like 50 or 100 tech CEOs will, will write a letter in support right. of one of these state bills, mm-hmm. like I think they did for 827. Um, on the local level, you have people like um, Benioff uh, of, of Salesforce supporting the, uh, the San Francisco tax on companies that would go towards housing. Um, you, and you have them, you know, I think... I think they're maybe not as – I'm trying to think about, like, what, what I actually think about this. So to, to me, um, the, the question I keep coming back to is it's obviously in their economic interest to lower housing prices in the Bay Area, right? Like, they, you hear all this stuff about how difficult it is to recruit workers, to retain workers, how they're losing talent to cheaper places outside the state entirely. And then you look at – Something like SB 50, and you see some tech presence and support there, but you don't see it in, I think, the, the magnitude or the level that, uh, you know, I, I would have anticipated, right? Facebook threw some money lobbying behind it. I don't know if you were aware of other tech companies that individually lobbied. I only know of Facebook, but... Yeah, and no, I'm not. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So I mean, that, maybe because so, it's so controversial, but yeah, I mean, I don't, you don't really hear about them doing as much. I mean, there's a few other like local things they're doing I could go into that are kind of interesting. Sure. But um, yeah, so Facebook's Facebook's done a few like small interesting things. It's taken a very different approach from Google, right? Mm -hmm. Because Google, they're really just focusing on the 15,000 homes they're going to build. That's that's what they promise. That's what they're really focusing on. Facebook's doing some like small little housing experiments, if you will. They 
launched this uh, ADU program, um, accessory dwelling units, those little small backyard units that a lot, of, a lot of housing advocates are saying could really help the housing crisis by adding um, more units to existing properties. They've launched a pilot program there with some students trying to do loans for low-income families to build these units in their backyard. Hmm. So, I mean, it's really small scale. They contributed yeah. uh, $325,000, which is, you know, nothing for Facebook. Um, but it's an interesting pilot program. And then they also are providing low-cost housing for 22 teachers in Menlo Park, which hmm. is kind of interesting. Um, they put $5 million behind that program, and basically teachers there pay 30% of their salaries. Facebook makes up the difference between that and market rate. Um, so that's going to end in 2022, and then it remains to be seen what Facebook does with those teachers who are living there. So that's kind of, a, that's kind of their approach is they're trying – they're not only doing some of that advocacy, um, some of that lobbying, and donating some money, but they're also – kind of trying to launch these experiments that they think, you know, maybe will make some dent and people can can emulate later. Gotcha. So the general orientation is a little more philanthropic than political. Yeah. And a little more, I mean, it's kind of a very tech-driven or a very um, techy way to solve it, right? Yeah. Like, let's launch these experiments and these pilot programs, you know, and then pivot and I don't know. so so i want to ask um so there's you know a lot of calls and i think this is not only from like the left left but also from uh, some of these kind of homeowner groups um that 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 may be opposed to more density generally that you know really what we should be doing given the massive size of these of these companies is you know really tax them substantially to much more than we do now to build uh you know help build affordable housing do you think that some of the efforts, uh, Google's most recent effort, um, and uh, you referenced some actions Facebook was doing. Also, there was money that the the philanthropic group from Mark Zuckerberg, uh, you know, put aside. I believe it was five hundred million dollars in in a, in a similar way um, to to address some of these problems. Do you think that those sorts of actions Google and Facebook are taking uh, as an effort, maybe to ward off some arguments that they're not doing enough, which could lead to you know proposals for large scale taxation of them? Absolutely. I think there's been a big push lately where the, the pressure is just ramping up and up for these companies to do something. You know, people, they're the easiest um, entity in the room to blame, right? They yeah. have the deepest pockets, and um, it's really easy for people to uh, blame tech. And obviously, they do play a huge role. And, you know, everyday people don't know what, like, CEQA is, for example. You know, they don't know um, where the other uh, holdups are in producing housing. They just know that the area is being flooded with tech workers and their um, prices are rising. So, yeah, I think absolutely the tech companies are feeling this pressure and realize they have to do something. Otherwise, yeah, they might face regulations that they really don't like. Um, all right. That's it for me. Liam, do you have anything else? No. What, what, is there anything you want to leave our massive audience with? Um. <laughs> no. <laughs> She's like, uh, your audience not that not that massive. Yeah. How bad is it? How bad is it in the bay? Is it is it truly a nightmare? Is it not so much of a nightmare? How bad is it? I mean, it's it's bad. It's it's really hard for anyone to live anywhere and it's it's really all people talk about, you know. It's just the topic of conversation is how no one can buy a house and, oh, where do you live and how much do you pay? Um, yeah, it's, it's not easy. But though there is, I mean, there's some hope that maybe it'll, things seem to be easing off a little bit right now. You know, home prices are, are starting to level off. Rents maybe are, are thinking about leveling off. So there's speculation we might have seen the worst of it, but who really knows? Yeah. Um, all right. Uh, thank you so much for joining uh, us, Marisa. Yeah, no problem. This was really fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Gimme Shelter, the California Housing Crisis Podcast. I'm Matt Levin, dad and housing reporter with Cal Matters. I'm Liam Dillon with the LA Times. I'm on Twitter at Dylan Liam. And I'm on Twitter at M Levin Report. Please keep rating and reviewing, and we'll see you in two weeks.